Let's open our Bibles now to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, as we study today, the oracle against the man. Genesis chapter 3. As much as we would like to think that the judicial systems around the free world are consistently fair, the sad truth is that they often are not. Not so much because of an intentioned lack of justice, but because sometimes people just make mistakes, and sometimes people are just incompetent. England, and in fact much of Europe, was outraged in the summer of 2007 when Judge Julian Hall sentenced a man convicted of violently raping a 10-year-old girl in a park in Oxford, uh, England that year. Earlier, that, that same judge recommended a lenient sentence to another child rapist and suggested, after, after doing, before doing this one, he suggested that perhaps the child might be bought a bicycle at public expense, and that would just take away the sting of being raped. On still another occasion, the Oxford judge refused to recommend that an Islamic illegal alien who can confess to ten counts of child rape be deported on the grounds that he wasn't a danger to society. You can understand why England and Europe was outraged, is outraged about that, and Parliament is doing their best to get rid of this man. But at least this man is incompetent. At worst, he's criminal himself. But at the other end of the spectrum of injustice in terms of judicial proceedings, Pace High School Principal Frank Lay and School Athletic Director Robert Freeman will go on trial on September 17th of this year at a federal court in Pensacola, Florida for breaching the conditions of a lawsuit, a settlement of a lawsuit that was reached with the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union. The criminal, not civil, the criminal charges, which carry a penalty up to $5,000 and a six-month jail term, originated on January 28th with a January 28th incident in which Mr. Lay, who was a deacon in a local Baptist church there, asked Mr. Freeman to offer a mealtime prayer at a lunch for school employees and Booster Club members who had helped out with the school field house project. The principal asked the athletic director to offer a prayer at this lunch, and that apparently violated the agreement that they, the district had with the ACLU, so they're bringing criminal charges against the principal. Criminal charges in the United States of America against the principal and the athletic director. We're going to have to wait to see how this works out. There was a third person involved this weekend. The judge threw out the charges against the third person. Hopefully they will throw out the charges here too. But understandably, many in Pensacola are outraged at this, as are people all around the country, Christian and non-Christian, frankly. But while man is sometimes unfair when applying justice, I can assure you God is not. With God... The punishment always fits the crime. Always. In theology, we call this talionic justice. The punishment fits the crime. God is always perfectly fair. Now, I know there are, there are people that will say, how can a loving God send any of his creatures to hell? Remember this. God is always perfectly fair. Although the woman was deceived in the garden and the man was not, both, both were guilty before God. Uh, 
both violated the prohibition against eating from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and both, both were in a state of rebellion against God, as are people today. We talk about the innocent that God sends to perdition. There are no innocents. If, if someone is in hell, they're there because they rebelled. They openly and willingly rebelled against God. Both Adam and Eve not only ate the fruit of the tree. We make that sound so sterile. They rebelled against their Creator when they did that. Open rebellion. God is always fair in whatever He does. Remember that. That's going to be the, that's the driving point of this message today. That's the driving point of these verses today. God is fair in whatever He does. God had decreed that if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. And now they're going to surely die. Mot tamut. They will surely, absolutely die. No way out of it. On their own. On their own. But what's God going to do now? Adam and Eve are His creatures. The highest form of His creation have rebelled against Him. What is He going to do? Is He just going to look the other way? Is He going to say, listen, I'm going to give you another shot at this. Can He do that? Will He do that? We've learned already in the previous studies that, that God is perfectly holy, and He cannot. It's not just that He won't. He cannot just simply look the other way at sin. He said that they would die, and they did die. They began to die immediately physically, and then they died immediately spiritually. They were immediately separated from the fellowship of God that they had enjoyed in spiritual death. They, they don't die for hundreds of years later physically, but the process began at that point. But in these confrontations that we call the oracles, the confrontations and the oracles, we see that God also introduces grace. Now, grace is not the same as God just looking the other way and says, I'll give you a do-over. That's not grace. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Somebody had to pay for grace. Somebody had to pay the penalty for our rebellion. Now, we've got to get that. That's why I've said so many times that in order to understand the New Testament, the New Testament is full of grace, right? Sometimes people make a mistake and say, the New Testament is about grace and the Old Testament is about law. Anybody who says that has never read the Old Testament. Grace is introduced right here in the third chapter. But in order to understand the New Testament, we've got to have a grasp of the Old Testament. And in order to understand the Old Testament, we've got to have our hands around Genesis. And really, in order to get our hands around Genesis, we've got to comprehend Genesis 1 through 3, and you guessed it, especially chapter 3. We, we are in perhaps, maybe, perhaps the most important chapter in the Bible for understanding all the rest of the Bible, everything else that happens. So we see that rebellion against God carries with it a price, and then God introduces grace. He could not just look the other way. Now, He couldn't just look the other way with Adam and Eve, and he can't just look the other way with me, and he can't just look the other way with you. Rebellion carries with it a very steep price, and we need to be careful. And Christ is the only one that could pay that price. If Adam and Eve were to have eternal fellowship with God, if it was ever to be restored, then somebody's got to pay it, and they can't do it. And since the animal kingdom couldn't do it, the list of people, the list of individuals that were eligible participants, it's getting kind of small. And we know from subsequent revelation that God's going to have to pay the price Himself. And when we consider that price that was paid for us, when we remember that we were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold from our empty manner of life, 
but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb without spot, without blemish. When we remember that, then we will live differently. We will think differently. We'll act differently. We'll make different choices in life. When we realize that we came that close to not spending eternity with God. I know we don't think that. We think, you know what, I'm not that bad. You probably thought that too. I, you know, I can, tell you, I can tell you honestly, I hardly ever got in trouble in school. Every now and then I did. We painted a water tower one time. Uh, that was a pretty big one. We painted it with tar, with, with our school's initials on it. It was next to the other school. They happened to, our school's colors were black. I, I think the statute of limitations has run out on this. So, it's been a long time. Our school's colors were black and orange. The other school, there's only two high schools in Casper. Their colors were green and white. The city, in their infinite wisdom, painted a huge water tower next to the other school, Kelly Walsh High School, painted it orange. Just the same color as our school. So we got together in the middle of the night. We had a great time, and we went and painted that. We got a professional sign painter to go paint NCHS on their water tower. I did get a little bit of trouble for that, but other, other than that, I was a pretty good kid. So I might could say, you know what? I can see why those murderers need a Savior. I can see why those child rapists, like that guy in England, needs a Savior. But me, I just need a little bit of salvation. And I know you feel the same way. <laughs> not no, and not really. We're all in the same boat. Now, this might be offensive to some, but it's the truth. We all need a Savior just as much as that child rapist that I mentioned a minute ago. Yeah, that violent child rapist, he needs a Savior, so did we. We're all saved by the grace of God. God is never unfair, quite the contrary. He's very fair. But if he is to have eternal fellowship with us, a price had to be paid, and Adam and Eve couldn't pay it. Because they're already behind the eight ball, so to speak. And we're born that way. When, when we really grasp that, and it may be in the middle of the night some night, as you're driving down the road someday, when a light goes on, you say, I get it now. I get it that I didn't deserve it. And if God didn't pay the price, it wasn't going to get paid. Yes, he must really love me. And that verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. Maybe that really does mean something. Maybe that's not just something I teach to the kids or the grandkids. Maybe it's really meaningful. God really does love me. And he's not unfair. Never unfair. In the final portion of this chapter that we've been studying for several weeks now, and we have one more week on it after this one, we see a pattern emerge. And, and perhaps you've seen it yourself now. First, the man is confronted. Then the woman is confronted. Then there's an oracle against the serpent. Then an oracle against the woman. And then an oracle against the man. So it goes man, woman, serpent in the middle. And then woman, man. And we've noticed before that there is no oracle, or there's no confrontation, rather, with the serpent. There's a confrontation with the man and with the woman, but none against the serpent. And we might can reason why, and that is that the confrontation against the serpent happened a long time ago. A long time before this one. There's no need to have a confrontation with a serpent, but with a man and a woman there was. And we've studied so far that confrontation with the man, the confrontation with the woman. We've studied the oracle against the serpent. And last week, we studied the oracle against the woman. And I thought you did really, really well with that, by the way. <laughs> and that's a tough one, isn't it? But, but I think you did really, really well with that. And now we have the oracle against the man. So men, it's your turn today. It's our turn. Then Adam said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. 
both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. As I've said over the last two weeks, let, let me remind you of these five critical preparatory comments. These, these five things are essential for us to understand this, the, oracle against, or the, the oracle against the serpent, the oracle against the woman, and the oracle against the man. Remember this, these are not commandments to be obeyed. These are not commandments to be obeyed, but rather these are declarations or descriptions of how life would now be. God's just saying this is the way it's going to be. He's not, he's not telling husbands to mashal, to rule with an iron fist over their wives, but he's saying that's the way because of sin entering into the world, that's the way it's going to be, at least far too often. And he's not telling men that they can't use a tractor instead of an old-fashioned horse and plow, but, but labor will now be painful rather than not be painful. In this section, we not only observe the punishments for sin, but also the provision or the relief that comes from grace. Grace is introduced in chapter 3 of Genesis. Therefore, technically, these, these oracles shouldn't be called curses. I know a lot of times there are, perhaps even in your Bible, there may be a heading that, that might use that terminology, but they're not technically curses, they're oracles. Now, the, the serpent is cursed, and the ground is cursed, but the woman's not cursed. And the man is not cursed. In fact, in the oracle against the woman, there's no mention of cursing at all with regard to her. And then finally, when we speak of a curse, we're referring to the idea of banishment from the place of blessing. All creation, not just the man and the woman, but all creation would now be barred from the fullness of fertility and harmony. There, would, there will be fullness in a sense and harmony in a sense, but it will not reach the level that it was designed to be because of rebellion against God. In Genesis 3.15, we learn in the oracle against the serpent that there will be a perpetual conflict between Satan and the woman, between Satan and Eve. Between them two personally, there'll be a conflict. But not just that. There will be a perpetual conflict between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. Now, we know who the offspring of the woman is. Ultimately, we know that that's Jesus Christ. But the offspring of the serpent include all who have rejected, all who have rejected God, all who have rebelled against God over the centuries. So we see that not only is it a, a conflict, a perpetual conflict between Satan and the woman, between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of the woman, but there's a perpetual conflict between good and evil. Because you see, ultimately, good is submitting to God. Evil is rebelling against God. So there's, there's this perpetual conflict that will take place until the end of time between Good and evil between the submission to God and the rejection of God. And we can, do what, we can do many, many things to try to suppress that. We can soften it through our relationship with Jesus Christ. But we shouldn't be shocked. We are. But we shouldn't be shocked when we read news stories like this child rapist. Or like some of the horrors that, that go on in war. We should, we, should be, we should not be shocked. We should understand it. And those who try to eliminate it are perhaps uh, attempting to do a good thing, but it's never going to happen. Now, that doesn't mean you ought not to feed the hungry. But there will always be this perpetual conflict between good and evil until Christ comes again. We learned 
that the seed of the woman would ultimately be victorious over the seed of the serpent. Remember the Mel Gibson film, The Passion? Remember that first scene? I happen to think that the crushing of the serpent's head occurred at the cross. But you remember that first scene where he's praying intensely in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's, and he's got the, the, the drops of blood on his forehead. And then, at least Gibson portrays it this way, and, and the, certainly the Scriptures do too, Luke does as well, that there is a point in time in the Garden of Gethsemane when Christ gets up and he's under no more anxiety. He's under no more stress. The decision has been made. He will follow the will of the Father as if he ever wasn't going to. But it was, a, it was an incredible test in the garden. I think the test in the garden is what finishes out the test in Matthew chapter 4, the test, the temptations of Christ. And then Gibson portrays it at that point of Jesus coming and crushing the serpent's head. I know why he does that. I know why some people would. Because in some people's mind, the victory was won right then. After the testing of the garden, the victory is won. It's all over then. But technically speaking, the victory is won at the cross and then in the resurrection as well. Satan was instrumental in the woman's undoing. And in God's sense of divine irony, the woman will be instrumental in the undoing of Satan. It's the seed of the woman. There will be this perpetual conflict between good and evil, and in the end, good will win. The seed of the woman, who is singular here, will be ultimately good and will conquer the seed of the serpent. And I believe that's a plural seed, although in Hebrew it's both the same form. But by the time we get to the New Testament, we see that's a plural seed, who are by virtue of their rejection of God ultimately evil. In the oracle against the woman that we studied last week, and I know uh, some were not able to be here, but we learned that in addition, in addition to painful childbirth, that the woman will now, after the fall, the woman will now experience a constant struggle within herself to dominate the man in marriage. And the man will experience a constant struggle within himself not to lovingly lead, as was his responsibility, but then to dominate the woman. That's a result of the fall. It was not designed to be that way. And just in case you weren't here last week and you're, you're not aware of this, there are some poor exegetes out there of Scripture that, that say, look here, the man is supposed to, mashal, he's supposed to rule with an iron fist over the woman. Listen, you knuckleheads, that was never a, a command to be obeyed. It's a description of how things would be. We're, husbands are not commanded to abuse their wives. But as a result of the fall, because we have all sin nature, sometimes that will happen. So the next time you hear somebody on the radio or in writing use this passage to talk about male dominance, turn it off. Because that's poor exegesis. Poor is being kind. It's not the way it was designed to be, but it's the way it will be until Christ comes. And again, the good news is, that when a Christian couple is walking in fellowship with God, relying on God, their focus is upon God in life, the effects of the fall can be softened. Now, they can never be done away with completely. But the effects of the fall will be softened by our relationship with Christ. But they are still there. If a Christian wife is living inconsistently, living consistently in fellowship with God, her desire to dominate her husband will be suppressed may never see it. If a Christian husband is walking in fellowship with God, his desire to mashal over the wife won't be seen. It'll be suppressed. 
And he will lovingly lead and she'll lovingly submit just like it was designed among equals, both created in the image of God. Not harsh dominance, loving leadership, if both are walking in fellowship with God. So you know what? If you're having trouble from a marital standpoint, this is my advice, first advice I would give you. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon him. And then the conflict between one another won't be so bad. And sometimes people say, well, this, I, 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 I'm doing it, but my husband's not. Or I'm willing to do that, but my wife's not. I don't care. You do it. You get yourself straight. You're the only ones you can take care of. You can't make decisions for someone else, but you can decide for yourself right now today that Christ is going to be the center of your life. And for you, at least, the effects of the fall will be softened. And guess what? You know what usually happens when one party does it? The other party typically follows suit. I know sometimes they're, well, it doesn't, and I know I'm looking at faces in this room that you told me that it hadn't worked out that way for you. But keep it up. Keep it up. It will. Again, in verses 17 through 19, then, Adam's, then to Adam he said, this is God speaking, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Actually, this is idiomatic. What God is actually saying, because you have obeyed your wife. You see, Adam had a choice, a very clear choice. Now, Eve was deceived, but Adam had this clear choice. He knew what God's prescription was. So he really had a very simple choice to make. He either listens and obeys God, or he listened to his wife. He obeyed his wife. And so God says, listen, because you chose to obey her instead of me, this is what's going to happen. Because you chose to obey her instead of me, this is what's going to happen. And it's not good. Now he repeats, I hope you notice this, he repeats the prohibition. I told you this and you did that. I told you not to eat from that tree and you ate from that tree. This is actually fairly judicial. It's just like a modern judge might say, you knew better. You knew better than to take an innocent life, but you did so willingly, you did so with malice, and so that I therefore now sentence you to death by lethal injection. Sometimes that happens in, in a court of law. And that's what God's doing here. You knew what to do. You didn't do it. And it wasn't just by omission. It was by commission. You willfully and wantonly disobeyed me to obey your wife. So this is what's going to happen now. The judgment here, as it was with the woman, is talionic, meaning that the punishment fits the crime. He ate in rebellion. So from now on, not only he, but all the rest of us, too, are going to face painful toil while eating or in the process of getting the food to eat. Remember that part of Adam's appointed role was to cultivate the ground. You remember that from back in chapter 2? Now the ground would be cursed because of his disobedience. His punishment would be a perpetual reminder of his sin. The ground which once was abundantly fertile would now be full of thorns and thistles. It would bring forth produce. I trust all of us have had something to eat today already. If not, you plan on eating something later, I'm sure. So the ground does produce produce. But the point is, it will now require painful labor for that produce to be produced. It, it won't happen like it was designed to happen. It'll, be, it'll require painful toil just to scratch out an existence. 
The painful toil would be part of the man's life until he died. There's no relief from this. Sin carries with it consequences. Now, again, the effects of sin can be softened for one who is walking in fellowship with God, but the effects are still there. His punishment is going to perpetually remind him of sin. Specifically, Adam would be reminded of his taking the fruit from the hand of the woman and eating it. But for the rest of us, painful toil reminds us of the principle of sin. And it's going to happen until he dies. Just as the woman would experience painful childbirth, so the man would experience painful labor. It's actually the same word in the Hebrew text. Painful in both situations. But don't forget there is hope. So I don't want to get you down by this lesson. I just want to let you know the reality. Because far too often in Christianity today, we ignore sin. And we do that to our own peril and to our culture's peril. Last time I gave you some statistics that only one, actually one half, actually it was on a Sunday evening, one half of 1% of people, all the people think they're going to hell. 71% of people believe in hell. Only one half of 1% of those people said that they thought they were going there. And I wonder what part the church plays in that. I wonder what responsibility we bear in that number. Because we've been so careful to remove any mention of sin from our sermons. To, to remove any mention of sin from the gospel, to remove any mention of hell from a gospel presentation, that it almost seems as though, to the public, that there's no downside to rebellion against God. But there is a downside to rebellion against God. And while the gospel is good news, and it's bad news that there's a downside, the good news is that there's an upside to it too, we've got to tell them the bad news, or the good news doesn't make sense. People just think they got it coming to them. A lot of people think they have heaven coming to them. Because of how good they've been. Or the, the contributions that they've made to, to different projects. I told this Sunday night, but I'll, I'll tell it to you again. Sunday and I were in Barcelona, Spain. I think the year was 2005, June 2005. We went to see the, the Gaudi Church. I forgot the actual name of it. Some of you have been to Barcelona. You know which one I'm talking about. Gaudi is actually a real person. He's the one that designed that church. We, we talk about things being gaudy. It's because of this, actually. This, this thing is, a, in my view, is a monstrosity. It's been going, it's been being built for 150 plus years. They're still not finished with it yet. But that's not the story. The story is when we finished the tour, we got around to the starting place. The guide told us, the group of about 20 people that were there, the guide told us that the Pope had granted a special dispensation. And I'm not kidding you. Anybody who gave to the, to the finishing of this project would get to go to heaven. I'm not kidding you. And I looked at Cindy. I said, did he just say what I thought he just said? And she did like she always does, and that's why she's a good wife. She put her hand on my arm and said, just leave it alone. <laughs> Remember that? Yeah, she does. It's not the last time she's had to do it, but I remember that one. Just leave it alone. You'll go to heaven if you give money for that? Who are you trying to kid? You think you can put a quarter in the pot and erase the effects of rebellion against God? I don't think so. We'll see next week what price had to be paid, at least in a shadow form, for Adam and Eve. And it was a, a sickening price, even for Adam. When we find out that one of, the, one of the creatures that he was supposed to have dominion over had to die because of something he did. No, there's a price to pay. Now, certainly we want to give the good news, and if you've never trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life, I want you to know today that God really does love you. He loves you intensely. 
But he just couldn't look the other way at sin. Somebody had to pay the price, and God sent his son to pay it for you. Now, what greater love is that? That is wondrous love. We sang about it this morning. And the responsibility that God has given us is just to trust him, to trust his son and the work that he did. And we can have eternal life, eternal fellowship with God. Now, that's a good deal. But if you reject it, I've got to tell you with tears in my eyes, you reject it at your own peril. There's going to be no do-overs in heaven. C.S. Lewis said, and I, and I think he said it well, there are really only two kinds of people. People that say to God, Thy will be done. And people to whom God ends up saying, Okay, Thy will be done. If you reject me, then you reject me. I'm not going to force you to come to me. So there is a prize. And the judgment is teleonic. Adam's destiny would be to return to dust. Cursed be the ground because of you in toil. This is pain. Actually, sorrow is the actual word. Same word that the woman's going to experience in childbirth. But, but pain is a good English word for that. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. But thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. You see the contrast? You remember Genesis chapter 2 when everything was so fertile and the ground brought forth produce and it was just abundant produce. And now we see, we see something that doesn't look like that anymore. The ground's still there. But thorns and thistles it shall grow. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Now remember, we said that these are not prescriptions. These are not commandments to be obeyed. So if you have an opportunity to work indoors in air conditioning, it doesn't mean that you're violating something. If you, if you're, if you live on a farm and you have a tractor and you don't want to use the mule and the plow, it doesn't mean you're violating something, but the principle exists that it will be painful no matter how much you love your job. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust. Now that's not very flattering. It reminds me of Shakespeare's Hamlet in which he called man the quintessence of dust. That's not very flattering. And that's not the end of it, by the way. But that's part of this description. Because physical death enters into the world, we're going to return to dust. And that's going to happen no matter whether your family chooses cremation as an option or whether they choose to put you in the ground as an option. Listen, if it's been more than 100 years or so, it doesn't matter what kind of casket you've got. There's dust inside of it. And then if it's been more than two or three or four hundred years, there's not much of a casket left either. It all goes back into the ground. And that's, that's a, a very depressing thought, isn't it? And it would be if that's all there was. But Adam is more than just the particles that make up his physical body. There's more than that. There's an immaterial part of Adam. And we know from later, later revelation that someday, that even though Adam's body will end up returning to the dust... Someday God in His glory and His majesty and His wonder and His love is going to reunite those particles in a resurrection body that will live on forever. That will be like Christ's body. Now when specifically Adam is going to receive his, I don't know, but I do know this. You'll receive yours at the resurrection of the church. When the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, could happen today. 
could happen before we're finished here. And the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with Him in the clouds, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's the moment we receive our resurrection body. That's the moment we, in effect, walk out of our tomb. Now, we're alive until then. We're totally conscious until then. In some interim form, to be sure. Recognizable. I think we're able to converse. It seems like we'll be able to have rational conversation until that time. But we won't be complete until that resurrection body. Adam's waiting his, we're waiting ours. There's only one resurrection body that's been granted so far, and that's to Jesus. He's the first fruits, and we're going to come after him. So we're more than just Hamlet's view of us. We're more than just the quintessence of dust. But that's what Adam's going to go back to because of sin. Because of sin, this body that he had, this perfect body, is not going to live on forever. Because of sin, this body is going to die. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, and you are dust, and so to dust shall you return. And that's a prescription, that's a description, rather, of how things would be because of the fall. His destiny, his destiny would be to return to the dust. So, so much for being like God. Remember, that's why they took from the tree in the first place. They would be like God. Knowing the difference between good and evil. That's what Satan told them, right? That's what he wanted to be. He was like the Most High God. He wants them to commit the same sin. They would be like God. So much for being like God. You're going to return to dust, Adam. Rebellion carries with it consequences, and with God, the punishment always fits the crime. Once more, let me, let, let me leave you with this hope. Adam is presently in heaven with the Lord, as are your loved ones who have trusted Christ that are absent from this body. They are in heaven with the Lord. They are in a place of perfect happiness, complete and perfect happiness. The best day they ever had on earth doesn't match the first few moments of heaven, not even close. But we do await this resurrection body. So that's what this passage speaks of when it says that Adam has gone to the dust. He awaits his resurrection body. So we have the oracle against the serpent, the oracle against the woman, and now today the oracle against the man. Adam sinned by eating. He would suffer in order to eat. Eve led her husband into sin. She would be mastered by him. They brought pain into the world by their disobedience. They would now have pain in their toil in their respective lives. The serpent brought ruin to the human race. And he's going to lose. I've read ahead. He loses. We're on the right side. It never pays to rebel against God. Don't do it. God is fair. He's also perfectly holy. He's graceful. He's, he's gracious. He's also perfectly holy. He loves you, but he's also perfectly holy. He can't just turn the other way. And if you choose to rebel against him, he's going to say, okay. He's going to do everything he can to pull you to himself. But if you choose, willingly choose to rebel against him, he's going to say, okay. These oracles all reflect talionic justice. God is perfectly fair and he is perfectly just. And remember this, he will always act consistently with his infinite perfection. Disobedience carries with it 
serious consequences. Heavenly Father, we were humbled by a passage like this, but we're also encouraged that even though things looked absolutely terrible for us and for the human race, for Adam and for Eve, that you stepped in. And you paid the price that was due to Adam and Eve and to all the rest of us. That you sent your Son, whom you loved so much with an eternal love, to die as a substitute for us. That's how you showed us that you loved us. I don't know what more you can do for us, Father, to show us how much you love us than that. Father, if there's anyone here today who has never trusted Jesus Christ, who's still in rebellion against God, I do pray that they would realize that they have a need and that sin carries with it consequences. But you have provided a way out. But, Father, I know they have to take it. So please, I pray that the Holy Spirit would press upon them the importance of the decision to accept the saving work of Jesus Christ, to trust him and him alone for their salvation. And, Father, for the rest of us, those who have already, through no merit of our own, who have already trusted Jesus Christ to forgive our sins and to grant us eternal life, may we be sensitive May we be sensitive to the effects of the fall, and may we realize that the only way that they're even going to be softened is by our walk with you. May we be careful in our marriages by having both husband and wife focus upon you day by day, moment by moment. In our relationships at work, may we focus upon you. In our relationships with our children, with our fellow church members, may we walk in fellowship with you so that these things might please you and glorify you. We know there will still be painful childbirth, there will still be painful labor, but Father, I thank you that the effects can be softened from our relationship with you. Father, help us to obey you in the days to come. In Jesus' name we'll ask it. Amen.